Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. What happens when someone in St. Louis is diagnosed with COVID-19? I'm not talking about the paranoia that we all feel intermittently these days, like, oh my goodness, I have a dry cough. Could I be coming down with something? I mean an actual positive test saying that someone has COVID-19. Well, when that happens, we ask the person to quarantine. To Rob Gatter, the key word there is ask. He doesn't really like it. He's a professor at St. Louis University School of Law. He's studied quarantine procedures over the years. And he has some concerns about how we're handling this whole thing. And he's agreed to come talk to us about it. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for uh, hosting me. So, Rob, what do you see as the main problem with officials telling people to isolate themselves as opposed to something more formal? Well, I think uh, one of the problems is that we want to have people on record. We want to have officials on record. It's a big deal to limit somebody's freedom of movement. We also want officials to be held accountable uh, if there is some way in which the order doesn't make sense. We want individuals to have the right to challenge that with a court. And the prospect of that tends to help officials really refine their focus and their thinking about who they're ordering into quarantine or isolation and who they're not. Um, and, uh, and then, I, really, I think it's a matter of making sure that we're taking seriously what amounts to being a serious deprivation of freedom. Mm. What do you think is driving the fact that everybody's using these informal orders rather than going this more formal route that you're suggesting here? Well, I think there's lots of reasons for that. One is that for the most part, especially during an emergency, uh, people are willing to cooperate. Public mm -hmm. health relies on public cooperation, and most people are on board with that. Um, so as, as a result, it works. And if it works, um, that drive a lot of what health officials do. Uh, another reason, I think, is that it's relatively quick, not needing to um, write down an order or seek court approval means that uh, public health officials can move faster. Mm -hmm. And yet another reason, and one that I think is concerning, is that where uh, procedural protections are not written down uh, in the law, public health officials can be concerned that they might get something wrong uh, going through the formal process. So instead, they make a request and get someone's agreement, um, and then they've avoided those, the risk of somehow getting wrong procedural safeguards that are ambiguous in the law. So they could say, oh, hey, we just asked. It was a consent agreement. Um, we didn't actually go after somebody in court. That sort of gives them an out? Well, it avoids the, the risk. If you have someone's agreement, then there's no reason that you need to follow certain procedures that you would follow if you didn't have someone's agreement. Mm -hmm. And it just avoids those uh, risks. And the reason to avoid those would be that the law you're operating under as a public health official might not be clear as to what those procedures are. Hmm. Tell me, what. so what would a formal quarantine order look like if officials asked people to do this after they had COVID, after they'd been diagnosed with COVID-19? What would the process have to be in Missouri for people to go that route? Well, there are options. There's no one size fits all. Uh, but um, what you'd want to see is a written order number one, as opposed to asking just orally and relying that someone understood what you said. You'd want the written order to identify who was being quarantined, how long they were being quarantined, why they were being quarantined, um, as well as 
the location for the quarantine and how strict it is. Um, some of us are referring to, to our stay-at-home obligations as as quarantine, but of course there are exceptions that we can go out and grocery shop, we can exercise in the park six feet away from each other. Um, so that would be an example of a, an order that has certain exceptions. Well, we wouldn't want that assumption to be made when we're quarantining an individual who we know has been exposed and we want to see if they're sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in addition, you'd want to notify an individual that that they have the right to challenge this in court, and this is how they would do it. Hmm. So when you say there'd be a written order that would be put out, you would not necessarily see that as going through court. The written order would be given to the person quarantining, and then if they want to challenge it, that's the point where it would be kicked up to a court process. Again, there, that's, that is one way to do it. That's how, um, that's how the state of Maryland, that has a fairly well-developed um, code of procedures for quarantine and isolation. That's how they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what, every public health official needs the authority to be able to issue an order without a court order for at least some initial period of time, even if that court order has to go to court. I'm sorry, even if that um, public health order needs to be reviewed by a judge before it's finalized. So, yes, the... the um, the recommendation that Professor Rutschman and I had in our op-ed in the Post-Dispatch was that uh, one option would be to give public health officials the ability to uh, issue an order uh, without having to go to court, and that order would last for 24 or 48 hours until an official uh, court order could follow from it. Hmm. But other states have been successful with uh, giving public health officials the authority to issue an order, and only if it's challenged by the person who's under quarantine would there be a court hearing. Any one of those, either one of those, is fine. Uh, What doesn't work is to have no procedure whatsoever, and it is unclear to an individual whether or not they have the ability to to order it. And then we're unaware also, when it's done informally, that we even have – individuals who are, how many individuals do we have who are uh, quarantined in that matter because there is no official record of it. We're talking to Rob Gatter. He's a professor at St. Louis University School of Law. You've referred to ways that other states are doing this. Are we alone in not having any sort of policy or procedure for doing this other than just telling people to stay home? No, not at all. There's plenty of states. I think it's the exceptional state like Maryland that has uh, a well-developed code. Um, Codes like this started to be um, um, not just developed, but updated after 9-11. You might remember the anthrax scare. Mm -hmm. Uh, The federal government um, asked for some experts to develop a model state public health emergency code that happened, and it's been available since about 2003. Uh, Some states have adopted it wholesale, very few, but some have adopted it wholesale. Others have adopted parts of it in some states. Most states haven't adopted any of it. Mm. And that might just be because it um, just doesn't rise to the level until we get an emergency like this to be on the front burner for legislators and and regulators. Mm. Um, So every state, including Missouri, has uh, state laws uh, that identify that public health may require 
that we quarantine or isolate someone. And that exists, that authority exists in writing. But few states have gone to the trouble to then say, what are the procedural steps to carry out that power? Mm. Now, some people might assume that by arguing for the use of more formal quarantines, as opposed to something just sort of given orally, that you're on the side of more quarantining. But I understand you have some concerns that sometimes the wrong people get quarantined or that these things aren't always constitutional. Can you give me an example of of when this has been misused? Sure. Um, I don't think that the kinds of quarantines that we're seeing uh, during this COVID-19 outbreak fall into that. I do think that the kinds of quarantines we're seeing during the Ebola scare in 2014 and 2015 do. Mm. And that's because the, um, the viruses are very different from each other. They behave in different ways. So Ebola is also a deadly infectious disease. But unlike COVID-19, it was not novel. At the time uh, it came to the United States in 2014, uh, researchers had known about Ebola, understood the way it was transmitted since 1976. Mm. Uh, Second, because we had that more information, we knew that only people who are actually sick, actually have symptoms of Ebola, are infectious. Infectious meaning that they have the capability of spreading it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Not only that, we knew that Ebola came with its own warning sign. Someone would spike a fever 20 to 48 hours before they would begin to experience the symptoms that were dangerous, the ones, the symptoms that would end up passing the infection on to a healthcare worker uh, or to somebody else who's caring for that individual. So there's really no need to quarantine them. Someone who's been exposed to Ebola, you would say, the order I'd like to have you under is that you're taking your temperature two, three times a day and reporting it into a public health official. And if it's if you spike a fever, then we're just moving you directly into isolation because we know within 24 or 48 hours you'll become infectious. It's funny to feel nostalgic for Ebola, but it sounds like with those kind of warning signs, you really could deal with this in, in a very civilized way as opposed to, you know, what we're in the middle of right now. And yet and yet um, 10 people uh, in Missouri were quarantined just because they had been exposed to Ebola. Hmm. And they were quarantined based upon an oral request uh, with no judicial oversight. Each one of those were unnecessary. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. All that was really necessary was an order um, that they take their temperature uh, and report it into public health officials so that they could be monitored, but they didn't need to be quarantined and have their uh, freedom of movement restricted. That's different with COVID. We know that people can spread the disease without having any symptoms. We also know it's more easily spread than Ebola. And we know so much less about it that it makes sense to have social distancing orders and uh, quarantine when we know that someone's been exposed. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned these people during this Ebola uh, crisis. They were here in Missouri, and it wasn't that they were being monitored for these spikes in fever, which it sounds like you would have seen as a good thing. They were ordered to quarantine. How long were they stuck in quarantine? Two weeks. So a quarantine order will typically last for the duration of 
the incubation period for the particular virus. Um, and it was 14 days for Ebola. And um, so that's, that was typically the duration of the quarantines. And each one was done informally hmm. with someone saying, with an official saying, we want you to quarantine. And if you don't, we could force you to. And each person cooperated with that. So they did cooperate. Did anyone try to challenge um, those type of things during the Ebola um, issue? Did people try to challenge that legally? Nobody from Missouri, but there was a relatively famous case. Well, there was the the famous incident of Casey Hickox, the nurse, who flew into New Jersey after having volunteered with Doctors Without Borders treating Ebola patients in West Africa. Mm. And Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, uh, quarantined her on the spot, and she challenged it. Um, at the time, she challenged, first, she challenged uh, an effort by the state of Maine. She eventually went back home to the state of Maine. Uh, the state of Maine wanted to quarantine her. She, You might remember that she took a bike ride outside of her house, and there were lots of photographers taking her picture. That's right. And a local judge uh, ruled that the effort to quarantine her was um, inconsistent with the statutory powers of the public health officials, namely because the public health officials admitted in their petition for quarantine that she was not yet infectious. Hmm. Um, After that scare was over, she filed a federal complaint against uh, Governor Christie and New Jersey's public health officials. And then less well-known is a uh, Liberian family who had visited a family in Connecticut they happened to arrive during the Ebola scare, um, and they were quarantined in the basement of their friend's house for two weeks. And after the scare was over, they also sued the governor of Connecticut and health officials in Connecticut, claiming that without showing any symptoms, it was not rational to quarantine them for that period of time. Um, the um, Some of of Casey Hickox's claims uh, were unsuccessful. Um, A state claim was successful, and and she settled that with the uh, state of New Jersey in return for their creating better procedures. Hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, the Liberian family lost its case in federal district court in Connecticut, and it is on appeal and has been on appeal for more than two years in the Second Circuit Federal uh, Court of Appeals, and it was fully briefed and argued, I think, 25, 26 months ago. And there still is not an opinion uh, resolving that appeal. Well, how helpful to have that all unresolved as we head into the largest public health crisis of our lives. It's, it seems like this might be a good time for the court to have ruled on that. But I, you know, I guess there's nothing we can do about that. Um, it's, it's very interesting to hear this background. And I'd never really thought about some of these issues. So this is a great um, sort of grounding in, in the legal stuff behind what we're talking about. And we are talking to Rob Gatter of St. Louis University School of Law. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. And now back to our conversation. We're talking to Rob Gatter. He's a professor at St. Louis University School of Law. And Rob, as you mentioned, you did sort of make this case in an op-ed that was published in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch a few weeks ago, arguing for quarantine orders that should be in writing and give people a chance to appeal them and just also make sure that things are, are clear-cut with the people who are under them. What kind of reaction did you get to that from people who might have the power to actually change how we're doing things? Uh, well, 
the I got a positive reaction from um, St. Louis County, for example. They were interested in seeing examples of um, procedures that have worked in other jurisdictions mm-hmm. uh, where they've been codified and tested. So um, I did share with the county the Maryland experience. Maryland had adopted that model statute we discussed earlier and have lived with it through a variety of public health uh, crises, including SARS, uh, H1N1, Ebola, and now this, which means they've had the ability to then make some changes uh, in light of their experience with it. So it's nice to have one that's time-tested. I shared that information with the county. I explained what I had, and um, and and uh, uh, I know that they were grateful to have that information as they were developing uh some of their own practices as we make our way through this crisis. And so have they changed? Are they now doing written orders, to the best of your knowledge? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, they are doing that. Uh, the difficulty is that this is uh, ramping up so quickly. Mm-hmm. The number of cases is still increasing significantly each day, as you were just talking about. Uh, and so uh, it's that's a, that's a difficult circumstances in which to try to make change on the fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, I understand that that is... Um, that is the practice going forward. And would you like to see these orders to quarantine being given to people once they have this diagnosis that, that they definitely have it? Or would that also apply to people who are in their close circle, might live with them, and we don't yet know whether or not they have it? Well, let me make a distinction first between uh, those who have no exposure, those who have known exposure, and those who we know are sick. Mm-hmm. Um, those who are testing positive, we don't quarantine them, we isolate them. Um, uh, quarantine is for those who've been exposed and we're trying to find out whether or not they are positive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, as we were discussing, someone might not show symptoms and and it may take some time to get test results back. So quarantine is uh, what you ask someone to do when they have a known exposure and we're waiting to hear test results. Either way, a quarantine order or an isolation order has substantial implications for somebody's freedom of movement. And so, yes, I would apply the same standard to each. Okay. I want to go to the phone lines. Uh, Nick is calling from Wentzville. Um, Nick, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. How are you all? How are you guys doing? Um, interesting conversation. So uh, I think you, the, uh, the, uh, the guest characterized, right, we know a lot about, like, hemorrhagic fevers, right, Ebola, Marburg, Lhasa, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't know a lot about COVID-19. So I think that, and this is my question, how do you ensure the alignment of the specific buckets of legal compliance, ethical compliance, and the infectious disease compliance, right? And that's mapped to public health, right? Mm -hmm. We want to decrease the probability of a person either um, being infected with or people being quarantined that you decrease the probability, right, and then flatten the curve and then drive the x-axis out, right, towards Mm -hmm. the towards infinity. So that's my question. I'll listen up here. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's a good question. Um, Nick, Rob, thoughts on that? Yeah. So the, the stand, what we'd be doing with procedures would be to, uh, to require that there's some rational basis for the um, public health officials taking the action that they are. And in doing so, that's a flexible standard. So where we know a lot about a disease, as the caller mentioned, um, those hemorrhagic diseases, uh, where we know about the disease, 
then that has to be taken into account. Where we know much less about the disease, then the law gives much greater flexibility to the public health official. Likewise, what's available to uh, address it. For example, um, if there is a vaccination or, uh, available for a particular disease, then uh, the law would require that officials explain not only why it's appropriate to protect others with something like quarantine, but why quarantine or isolation instead of just simply the vaccination. In the case of COVID, we don't know that much. What we do know is that it can spread in lots of different ways, and we're still determining what those ways are. And we don't have any sort of treatment or um, medicine to to make individuals immune. Mm -hmm. Uh, Therefore, the law using that same standard would still permit the kind of widespread use of quarantine and isolation that we're seeing today in a way it wouldn't using the same standard if we were talking about Ebola. Okay, that makes sense. Um, I want to go back to the phone line. Zev is calling from St. Louis. Um, Zev, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to comment and voice my opinion that I think, unfortunately, there are not enough people who are taking social distancing as seriously as it needs to be. Mm. Um, And that I think it would be very important and beneficial to have an official um, stay-at-home or shelter-in-place order for Missouri or at least St. Louis and the greater St. Louis area until we have more information or there's a better handle on um, the outbreak um, mm-hmm. as it is right now. So something perhaps along the lines of what they're doing in Los Angeles, um, where you really do have to be at home unless you're doing one of these very essential things. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, Zeb, thank you for that perspective. Um, Rob, thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, uh, so... If I understand the caller's question, I mean, we do have in Missouri now, starting yesterday, uh, and we have had since the 23rd in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, uh, stay-at-home orders uh, that exempt uh, essential businesses. And I take the caller's question to be about whether those orders need to be more strict or whether they need to be enforced in some way to make sure that everybody's in compliance. I think he's urging that they need to be written even more strictly. I mean, my sense Mm -hmm. of Missouri's orders is that they have a lot of exceptions that say the Los Angeles orders don't have. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think he's saying he, you know, less of a question and more. We we really need that here. Do you have a take on whether that would be even legal to, to make it tougher here? Oh, I think it would be legal. Um, I think the question really is one of the calculus of getting it just about right. Mm -hmm. I started off uh, the segment by saying that public health requires uh, public cooperation. And uh, public cooperation uh, is best achieved through restrictions that not only are rational, but they're sufficient to try to stop the spread of the disease and yet at the same time are no more restrictive than they have to be. The more restrictive you make them, the more resentment you develop, and the more difficult it is to get people to comply. Hmm. Uh, So when you see how some researchers are modeling the flattening of the curve, uh, when you look into it, they will take into account not only what the law says, but also projecting some degree of compliance. And a common number to use is 75%. But 75% of people will comply with whatever order you put out there or with the orders that have been placed, but others will not. And based Mm -hmm. on that, with 75% compliance, here's the level of 
curve flattening that we get. So one option, right, is to make those written restrictions uh, even tighter, Mm -hmm. and hopefully you'll get greater compliance uh, with those. At some point, however, restrictions can be so tight that you find individuals just can't abide by them, and so they're creating their um, making more exceptions backfire. for themselves. That's that's really interesting, and, and how fascinating you guys have models for that, too. And um, unfortunately, we are out of time on this segment today, but I'd, I'd love to revisit that topic more. So, Rob Gatter, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Sarah. And Rob is a professor at St. Louis University School of Law and was sharing his thoughts on quarantine procedures and other public health matters. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.